Hi, this is Ty from Adventure Sling Productions, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 47, we catch up with the companions who, after their unpleasant encounter with the Rosefinger's gang at the Tumbledye Inn, are making their way to Nepule. They finally reach their destination after several days on the road and find a butcher shop called Towerside Fresh and Salted Meats. Here they meet their contact, Haylorin, who has them wait while he goes off to make further arrangements and then to announce their arrival and the delivery of the royal jester. At this point, we cut to Krell, who is conducting a kind of macabre experiment. After the first pair of unexplained deaths in the dungeon, he sets up the necessary conditions to see if they will repeat, instructing the warden to keep a close watch. The experiment is only a partial success, at least from his point of view. By morning, only one of the prisoners is dead. Krell's fascination with this phenomenon is growing into something like an obsession by this point, and he decides to personally oversee a repeat of the previous night's experiment while ignoring his actual job and its associated duties altogether. We revisit the companions as Halor and returns and takes them from the butcher shop to a second establishment, an alehouse where the party is seated by a woman that listeners might recall, but to the party is a stranger. She takes briar patches with her, leaving the party to enjoy a night of food, drink, and music, while they await a meeting with their employers. That meeting is set to take place at the end of the night, after all the patrons have left, and the companions have been led into a cellar where they have surrendered most of their weapons. Part 1. Day 126. Night. Party status. Yellowfly. 26 of 30 hit points. Shawnee. 21 of 22. Jace. 30 of 31. Catsbane. 13 of 15. Bazoo. 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized. Read languages. Magic missile. Invisibility. And mirror image. Bazu has prayed for, detect evil, and bless. The companions had been instructed to sit on the far side of the cellar's single round table, so they were more or less facing the door when the two men entered. The companions recognized them right away. They were the barkeepers. After entering, each stood to one side of the stairwell in order to permit a third person to enter the room. This turned out to be the ill-favored woman from before. However, now she was dressed in a black gambeson, fronted by a stiff leather breastplate. A metal quaff jutted up and past her chin, covering the lower third of her face. 
In her hands, she carried a longsword, still in a scabbard. Now, close up and in the lamplight, the two men looked less like blood relatives than they had before, though both were swarthy and plain-featured. The elder kept his hair, what was left of it, tied in a small ponytail in the manner of some priests. He had a web of wrinkles around his eyes that became even more pronounced when he smiled, as he was doing presently. The younger man, they could see now that he was not so young as they had previously guessed, had an easy-going air and a kind face. He was of average height and build, had brown eyes, brown hair, and could fairly be said to have a forgettable appearance. Our associate says you would not be parted with your blade, he said. More than fair, and I dare say our ancestors would be proud. But as my friend and I have so many enemies, we hope you will not mind that we've brought along some protection of our own. Of course, you've already met her. The woman bowed, almost imperceptibly, and walked into the space between the two parties, standing to one side and out of their line of sight, but within easy striking distance, should trouble arise. Whether she smiled or frowned at them, it was impossible to say, as the metal quaff covered her mouth as well as her chin. Still, there was a self-assured quality to her that spoke of both prowess and strength. Yellowfly was not an easy hand with social graces, but he knew one little trick that sometimes broke the tension. Sometimes, all that was needed was a well-placed compliment. You serve very fine ale here, he ventured. It must have been the right thing to say. The elder of the two men fairly blushed and smiled even more broadly. Think you so? Well, I thank you kindly, for I brewed it myself. He's being modest, the younger man chimed in. They brews half the ale in the pool. I think if the horse served anything else, we'd be out of business in a month. The horse? echoed Shone, trying to summon something that looked like a congenial smile. Yes, lass, the horse. You're in the belly of the horse right now. Or perhaps the bowels. This establishment is called the Pale Horse, or it was when it opened. Within a month, folks were calling it the Ale Horse, and then I suppose that was too many words for them to bother with, so now they just call it the Horse. I do hope they don't decide to cut out any more sounds. I might find myself running a whole new business. I don't think my wife would appreciate it. Well, it's a fine ale, as I say, continued Yellowfly. And now, I wonder, as you're a brewer, if you happen to know of a man named Luden, by any chance. The older man stiffened. Luden, why do you ask? His discomfort was plain to see. We, uh, we had a companion named Tam, who knew a brewer Luden from Nepur. Tam, you say? Aye, Tamlin. He was a cleric of Chartoon, one of the best men I ever knew. Yes, I do know this man, but by your use of the words had and knew, I take it you no longer travel with him. Pray, tell me nothing ill has befallen good Tamlin. Sadly, he has passed. Yellowfly could not hide the emotion from his voice. Oh. Oh dear. The web of wrinkles around the man's eyes remained, but the edges of his smile drooped. These are sad tidings. Tamlin was a good friend. So then you would know this Brewer Luden. I am this Brewer Luden. Or at least, I was. That name no longer belongs to me. And why is that? Because it belongs to a dead man, that's why. Well, it's too long of a story to tell right now. Perhaps later. The man pressed his lips together and then wiped a tear from the corner of one eye before he continued. At least, if you were friends with Tam, that does much to recommend you. Recommend, said Yellowfly, not quite following the other's meaning. With respect, our job is complete, and if you'd be so kind, we'd fain collect payment and be on our way. The younger of the two men fished a heavy purse out of his belt pouch and then tossed it to Yellowfly who caught it. The jingle of coins was easily audible. One hundred pieces of gold. Yellowfly nodded in appreciation and tucked the purse away. Currently, I go by the name Bromley. It is not my real name, but, well, 
for some of us, it is important to remain somewhat fluid in terms of our identity. I am daring to hope you are truly the one called Yellowfly. Now it was Fly's turn to stiffen. Still, he got a good feeling from these men and decided to take a risk. Yes, I'm he. We've heard of you, said Bromley. Yellowfly's face remained impassive. We heard what you and your people did during the king's three days of blood and justice. Now Yellowfly's muscles tensed and his eyes flicked at the Silverthorn blade on the table right in front of him. He hoped he had not misjudged these men. To us, you are heroes. The younger man nodded in agreement as the other spoke. And we have some ideas we'd like to share with you. Will you stay and talk a while? There was a moment, pregnant with tension, that Sean A broke, surprisingly, by stretching and yawning loudly. Apologies, she muttered. It's getting late. Well, I think we'd be prepared to listen, Yellowfly said, while flashing Sean A a look of annoyance. Then, addressing the younger man, perhaps we could have your name as well. Oh, how rude of me. My name is Shrole. Shawnee has just used Thieves' Cant to communicate to Yellowfly that these men can be trusted. Her stretching and complaining of the late hour, or feeling tired, is a code particular to Yellowfly's gang. It's one of dozens of subtle ways they have to communicate secrets and ideas in plain sight and during the natural flow of conversation. Fly and Shawnee have been working together so long, the two of them have practically developed limited telepathy when using Thieves' Cant. Fly understands what Shawnee is telling him, and his look of annoyance is just more cant, a way for him to let her know her message was received. So why does Shawnee trust these men? It's not because Bromley claims to have known Tamlin, nor is it because she recalls hearing the name Shrawl once before. She trusts these men because she believes they were genuinely unsure about them. She thinks that because, before any of them had even met, she overheard part of their muffled conversation from outside the room. This occurred in the last episode when she made a successful hear noise check. She heard the younger man, Shrawl, saying to Bromley the phrase, These folks are no blind man of the orchard, and she recognizes the expression. It's an allusion to a parable of Chartoon that Tamlin had shared with her on several occasions. If it hadn't been for Tamlin, Shawnee would not have understood the reference, but thanks to the late cleric's penchant for sharing stories, she did. The Parable of the Blind Man Tamlin once told Shawnee that the Parable of the Blind Man was also known as the Fourth Revelation of Chartoon. Well, Shawnee did not really know the difference between a revelation and a parable, but she had always loved to hear Tamlin tell this story in particular, because it demanded that the listener draw their own conclusion, and she liked that aspect. She had thought about it many times, and she felt she did understand its lesson. From her point of view, the evidence of its wisdom was everywhere. Tamlin, always with a little smile playing about his lips, told it thusly. When Shawtoon was of the age of five and seven, it was his habit to visit the orchard in the morning several times a week. This was the very same orchard we can still find just outside Silmore's walls. Perhaps you have been there, Shawnee. Hmm? I see by the glimmer in your eye that you have. If you know the orchard well, you'll know that here and there, the workers have felled trees and used their trunks as places to sit and rest. It was the same in Chartoon's day. It happened that, some mornings, an old blind man could be found sitting on one of these fallen logs. Chartoon would watch him being led to the spot by a young woman, perhaps his granddaughter. 
The two of them would talk for a while, and then she would depart, leaving him there alone for a few hours before coming back later in the afternoon to collect him. During the hours he spent alone, the old blind man would scatter bits of dried bread or seeds from a pouch on the ground around him, and all manner of birds would come. Clearly used to his presence, they would fearlessly alight on the fallen log on the ground, perhaps even on the top of his head, Shone. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Robins, blue jays, finches, and sparrows, all manner of little birds, and he would listen to them sing as he fed them. In addition to seeds and breadcrumbs, the old man always brought a lunch. Sometimes it was a half loaf or some hard cheese, sometimes even a meat pasty. And, of course, there was always an apple in his lap, picked and given him by the young woman before she left. At this time, Shatun was little more than a street urchin. He was woefully thin, but he had learned how to be quick and silent. As soon as he became aware of him, he resolved to steal this old blind man's lunch and eat it himself. The first time he did so, he crept up from behind, carefully measuring every step, inching closer, until he could finally swipe the food, and then, just as carefully, creep away. Shatun could have dashed away, but he decided to make a game of the theft and have some fun. He wanted to test his skills and see if he could get in and away, completely undetected. The next day, he found the man just as he had the day before. Thanking the gods for his good fortune, he decided to do it again, but this time he was less careful. Still, he got away with the man's lunch and ate well that day. A few days later, he found the man in the orchard again. By now, his hunger had returned, but he was careless. He stepped on a little twig that snapped audibly during his approach. But the old man did not flinch at the sound or even move at all. He continued to smile blandly straight out in front of him while birds hopped and twittered all around. Perhaps, thought Shatun, the man was deaf as well as blind. Having had the thought once, he could not help but test the theory. There were plenty of opportunities as the man came to the same spot every few days. Each time Shatun came to steal his lunch, he was less and less careful, until finally his approach became downright brazen. Still, the old man never reacted and continued, like a fool, to come to the same spot again and again, only to have his lunch stolen each time. Did he think the birds took it? Shatun wondered. Perhaps the man was stupid, as well as being deaf and blind. The day finally came when, after Shatun had stolen from the man seven plus seven times, that he decided to walk up right in front of the man and take his food in plain view. Heretofore, he had always sneaked up from behind. The old, stupid, deaf and blind man had his eyes closed and wore a mild expression on his face, as birds, now accustomed to Shatun's presence, hopped about, trilling and peeping. Shatun reached down and grabbed the man's food as he had so many times before. This time, his lunch was a meat pasty, one of Shatun's favorites. As he took the warm little meat pie into his hand and turned to go, he caught, out of the corner of his eye, something atop the old man's lap. It was under the ever-present apple, which Shatun never bothered taking. As he had always approached from behind, he had never noticed it before. It was a book. The significance of this did not strike Shatun until he was back within the city walls, well and far away from the old man in the orchard, and had already eaten half of the pasty. When the truth occurred to him, he fell onto his knees, dropping the half-eaten pasty on the dusty road. And then, he wept in shame and gratitude. 
how do you fix a quandary? There's only one solution. Portal Quandary is a Dungeons and Dragons real play comedy, drama, dramedy, dramedy podcast about a party of mismatched heroes trying to do just that. Join Dungeon Master Tyron Cross as he hurls our Melbourne-based party into a mystical world full of strange creatures, stranger people, and strangest of all, unanticipated self-discovery. Gross. Listen to Portal Quandary now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Episodes released tri-weekly. In the last episode, I rolled a reaction check to see if Bromley and Troll would trust the party. I rolled a 9, which is a very good result, but not off the charts. It was enough for them to decide that they could open the door and let the party in. But let them in to what? This is where things get interesting, because Bromley and Troll are two of the most influential men in Camertine, and they have some pretty big ideas. So, who are these men exactly? Bromley, who used to go by the name Father Luden, and also Brewer Luden, is the head of an organization called the Free League of Nepul. They are separatists, anti-royalists, and rebels. The other man, Shrawl, is equally important. He is none other than the head of the Church Thieves Guild. Of course, it's extremely unlikely that either man will share this information with the PCs at this time. Still, it's important that we know who they are, because the trajectory of this story is about to pitch up sharply. When Briar Patches was delivered into their custody, the royal jester, as per his instructions from Lord Rabbit, broke his silence and shared everything he knew with the young woman who acts as Shrawl's personal bodyguard. She learned that the king had been dealt a very severe blow by something that looked like Carrick Melmar, but wasn't. That's the best Briar could do to describe what he saw anyway. Both Bromley and Shrawl had gotten wind that the king was ill, and they had even heard the story about his wanting to find salvation through a pilgrimage to Camranth but they didn't believe a word of the second part. They'd been waiting a long time for the right opportunity to make their move and strike at the crown. Now, with this new information from Briar, they realize that the iron is hot. The plan is for nothing short of total rebellion, but in order to act, in order for the oppressed people of Nepul to rise up and fight with strength and hope, Bromley and Troll know that they will need champions. If the parable of the blind man had meaning for you, you'll understand that Bromley, especially, is looking so hard for such champions that he doubts his own judgment. Shrawl, being aware of the companion's past successes, has assured him that his instincts are good. These people could well be the heroes they've been seeking. So, regardless of how much they share about their own identities, they are going to have a lot to talk about with Yellowfly and his party. I think I'm going to make a second reaction roll to see just how much faith they'll initially put into the companions. 2d6, higher is better, and I'm adding a plus one to account for the positive tack their meeting has taken so far. Bazu's charisma modifier, by the way, is not applicable here, since the cleric has been keeping his mouth shut. Here comes the roll. An eight plus one is nine. Another good roll, not good enough to tell all, but good enough to make their pitch. Chapter 48, Part 2, Day 126, Late Night, Party Status. The party status is unchanged. Bromley, Shrawl, and Yellowfly's gang talked long into the night. There was much to discuss, and by dawn they had really only scratched the surface. Bromley asked for and was given some of the details surrounding Tamlin's death, and the party shared the tragic story. He was further saddened to learn that Cole, whom he had also known, if less well, had also passed while in their company. They spent an hour sharing stories about the two men, with the party fondly recounting how they met and were sworn in, and the adventures they shared. 
while Bromley smiled wistfully as he recollected the two young men's frustration, especially Cole's, with how slowly and inefficiently the Free League of Nepal went about accomplishing its goals. The idea, and I think it has worked very well, was to lull the local authorities into a false sense of complacency, explained Bromley. Instead of hiding our operation and having Lord Goddard wondered if wheels of sedition turned below his notice, we let them discover us. We took his spies into our operation and let them see just how small, disorganized, and incompetent we were. The result is that when we do strike, and strike we will, Goddard will be caught flat-footed. Unfortunately, sometimes our own people, and often the best of them, get frustrated and go off on their own, as Tam and Cole did. Obviously, in order to maintain the illusion, only very few people can know. I wouldn't be telling you except that... Except that you plan to strike very soon, supplied Shawnee. Yes, that. And we hope you will join us. Well, it sounds like a good strategy, said Yellowfly. We think so. We hope so, Bromley concluded with a lopsided smile. During this part of the conversation, Catsbane and Jace said little. They were recent recruits and felt out of their depth. As for Bazu, he said nothing at all. He was keenly aware that he had not yet been sworn in, and wondered if that information might upset these people. After talking about Tam and Cole for a while, the conversation moved on to other topics. Yellowfly wanted to know, if Bromley used to go by the name Luden, who was it that had languished in the Wing's torture dungeon? Uh, that was a small stroke of luck, and genius said Shrawl with a little laugh, looking over at Bromley, who grinned back. <laughs> I'll spare you the details, but to suffice it to say, we managed to convince the Winks that one of Lord Goddard's men used that alias. They took him instead. Of course, it did force Bromley here to choose a new name. The companions also wanted to know if they knew of a woman named Romola of Mirpool. They shared their several experiences with her, and Shane concluded by saying, When she escaped us the first time, she told us to say hello to you. To me? Shrawl was perplexed. No, I don't know anyone by that name. Though I am originally from Mirpool, perhaps I know her by a different name. At this point in the conversation, Dawn was only an hour off, and they had still not covered a fraction of what they wished to talk about. During this time, the woman with the sword leaned casually against a barrel, arms crossed over her leather breastplate, eyes sharp, but with the rest of her face hidden behind her oddly styled metal coif. Shrawl changed the subject and asked the companions how they had managed such success during the king's three days of blood and justice. Offrin was there and saw everything. Shrawl motioned to the fighter. Was it sorcery? As she says. In a manner of speaking, Yellowfly replied. Telling that story took them until dawn, though down in the cellar, they were only aware of the passage of time by their growing fatigue. We're getting to the point where Bromley and Shrawl will ask the PCs to do something, but what exactly will they ask them to do? If the previous reaction checks had produced lower numbers, there would be some kind of mission for the companions to prove their worth and their loyalty. I'd expected that and I had a couple of ideas about what that might be, but it doesn't matter now. The Dice Gods have decided to accelerate the story and move on to bigger things directly. Well, who am I to argue? Bigger things is exactly what we'll do. I'm going to make a quick table and roll at random to see what kind of job they're given. Using a simple d6, on a 1, they will steal something. On a 2, they will do some dangerous recon or exploration. On a 3, they'll have to persuade someone to do something. On a 4, they'll have to defend something. On a 5, they'll have to destroy something. On a 6, they'll have to kill someone. Rolling. Yeah, I should have known.
Although Yellowfly did not pose the question for Bazu's sake, the young cleric leaned forward in his chair when he asked, Speaking of the king's justice, what do you make of the arrest of the clerics of Zidal? Will they be executed? They won't dare, said Shrawl. I suppose it's Captain Skrell and Sidwan giving the orders now. Certainly not the queen. They know the people of Samora are unhappy. They are too smart to poke the bear right in the eye. They'll just hold the clerics as prisoners indefinitely and hope the public forgets they exist. Do you plan to use that to stir up resentment? asked Yellowfly. Not yet, said Troll. We'd like to take action here in Nepul first, to force Whitestone Castle to deal with us. If they come here, we'll fight them on our own ground. If they don't, the people of Nepul will see what we see, that now is the time to take down the monarchy forever. Right, said Yellowfly, nodding. So, the first step is to test their leadership, bait them into action. And you wish us to help. What would you have us do? Shrawl straightened up in his chair and looked each of them in the eye. Well, we want you to kill Lord Goddard. Chapter 48 Part 3 Day 127 One hour after dawn Krell opened his eyes. At first, he did not know where he was. The surroundings were all unfamiliar. He was certainly not in his warm and comfortable bed, cocooned within the sheets and with the lingering sweet smells of his exotic woman. No, where he was, it was dank and dark. It smelled of urine, and there were sounds of human suffering nearby. He realized with a start that he must have fallen asleep on the warden's chair. He was in the dungeon, and despite the darkness, it was morning. The only light came from the top of the stairs, as the torch had gone out hours ago. Cursing himself, he got up, took a step, and immediately staggered into the wall. His head was cloudy, as though he were a bit drunk. Fumbling in the gloom, he found the tinderbox by the guard station, struck a flint, and lit a torch plucked from its wall sconce. As the orange glow bloomed, he heard renewed desperation and the sounds of lament to either side, but he ignored these and walked carefully down the hall. He passed the communal pens until he reached the solitary cells. A scuffling sound, followed by muffled sobs, told him the female prisoner was still alive in her cell. But the other was not. Like those before him, he had been torn to wet shreds by something. Most of the body, as had been the case with the others, was gone. Only pieces remained. Also, as before, whatever had gotten to him had done so without disturbing the lock on the cell door. Krell's hand went to his belt and felt for the warden's key ring while he stared at the organic mess in the cell, and, without realizing he was doing it, he licked his lips. The keys were still with him. Whatever could have done this? Looking down, he noticed something that had not been there during the previous investigations. A set of footprints in blood. They led away from inside the cell, straight through the bars of the cell door, and then, before they faded into nothingness, toward the iron-banded door that led to the lower dungeon. He crouched down and studied them. They were too small to belong to most men. The footprints belonged, he was almost certain of it, to a woman. The feet that left those prints behind had passed that way hours ago. Sivan, in her natural form, nude, gorgeous, and terrible with a black bat-like wing sprouting from each shoulder blade, stalked the secret corridors behind the very same portal Carrick had once struggled against so mightily. 
For her, the door's face grinned lasciviously and opened wide at her lightest touch. She had already passed through the silent halls of the dungeon's second level, where nothing lived anymore. Many of the dead there had succumbed to her lust. Some were murdered and dismembered for sport, but most had been devoured. King Colfrey's half-eaten corpse rotted along other remains of priests and criminals alike. The king, and those few criminals actually guilty of their crimes, did not provide much in the way of sustenance, but the clerics of Sadal had rich, bright souls. Souls Savan could take to her master, as she was doing now. Lord Azorazul had been terribly weak when she had answered his call. The body was old and a ruin, nothing like the warrior's form he had inhabited last time they had come to this plain. But she would nurse it back to health. Like a mother bird, she would bring the worm. And so, through the winding halls, deeper and deeper into the bowels of the earth, with the vile succubus. Happy Halloween, everyone, and thanks as always for listening. If you're the kind of witch or warlock who'd like to help to support the show, there are Cauldron's voice to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like or repost episode announcements on X. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum Worldbuilding Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. This episode ran a little long, so I'll skip my usual review read aloud and jump right into thanking my cast of spooky voice actors. James Schrall of the excellent solo play podcast, Subclass Act, plays, well, he plays Schrall, of course. Bromley, the man formerly known as Father and Brewer Luden, is played by Chris Hussey of the beautifully produced Gun for Hire podcast. My thanks to Chris and James for helping me out with some lengthy speaking parts. I strongly recommend both of their pods. Please check them out if you haven't already. Finally, I'd like to shout out the Deco DM, Alex Burton, at DecoDiceDND for providing the name of Shrawl's Tavern, the Ale Horse, when I asked for suggestions on X. What a brilliant name. Thank you, Alex. Thanks also to the many other responses I got. There were so many good ones. I'm sure I'll use at least one or two more before the season is through. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. You can also email me at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Every party needs a cleric, and so, in a sense, the cleric makes the party. I'm excited to announce Clericon, an old-school RPG convention hosted by the fabulous Dungeon Minister. When is it? November 3rd to 5th, 2023. Where is it? Glen Williams, Ontario, just west of Toronto. Who's going to be there? Well, it's hosted by the Dungeon Minister and the Honeywood Gang. Sean of Mage's Musings is going to be there. So is Daniel from Bandit's Keep. And I'll be there too, running a few games and hanging out. Hopefully you'll be there. It's going to be a great time. Be sure to check out clericon.rsvpify for more information and to register. That's clericon, C-L-E-R-I-C-O-N dot R-S-V-P-I-F-I, R-S-V-P-I-F-Y. Hope to see you this November at Clericon. There will be much games in the days ahead.